0: Hey everyone i'm jim ambusky and this is conversations at the washington library although you may not realize it in the years before the american revolution nova scotia was kind of a big deal people knew about it concocted various schemes to settle it and the british government saw it as one of the keys to its new vision of empire after the seven years war nova scotia has a fascinating often troubled history indigenous peoples and European powers competed for the land and access to the colony's lucrative fishing grounds, drawing maps to stake their claims, making war, and in the case of the British, using settlers to box out other competing interests in a strategy that our guest today calls Weaponized Settlement. On today's episode, Dr. Alexandra Montgomery joins me to chat about her research on Nova Scotia as an imperial place and as a site of land dispossession in the era of the American Revolution. Montgomery is our postdoctoral fellow in the digital history and cartography of the American Revolution here at the Washington Library. And in addition to telling you about Nova Scotia and an exciting new digital mapping project we're working on these days, you'll also learn about the Donair, a Nova Scotian treat that should be on the top of your bucket list. So I hope you came hungry because it's time to weaponize settlement with Dr. Alexander Montgomery. Although we have a lot of important business to talk about today, of course, Nova Scotia maps uh, your work on Nova Scotia, Your work on maps. The most pressing question I have at the top of our conversation is what is this Nova Scotian delicacy known as a donaire and Could you please tell me a little bit more about that I request elaboration?
1: Well, the donair is, I believe, the official food of Halifax, Nova Scotia, my hometown. And it's a charming variant of the euro. So it involves a similar kind of mysterious spinning meat conglomeration that rotates slowly throughout the day that gets cut up, put on a pita with dressings. But the thing that really defines the donair is the donair sauce. Donair sauce is a sweet sauce made from condensed milk, lemon juice, and some kind of witchcraft that makes that taste good as opposed to horrifying. And so that's all put together on the pita. It is a beautiful blend of sweet and savory and salty. It is very comforting. Probably one of the top causes of death in the maritime (laughs) provinces, but it's worth it. You can get all kinds of donair spin-off delights like donair pizza, uh donair egg rolls. I've seen donair poutine attempted. Um, I've never seen that successfully pulled off. I think that that's too that's flying too close to the sun, but it is a it is a true delicacy that I highly <laughs> encourage everyone to um, try at least once in their life.
0: Well, when I first read you sent you sent an article over our Slack channel about this and I'm reading it and I'm like, how does condensed milk work in this? In this environment. In this, how's just it just don't
1: ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> you just go with it. Just didn't understand,
0: but apparently it's really good.
1: The key to donairs, and especially donair sauce, is to think about it as little as possible and just enjoy <laughs> the process. Because the more you think about it, the grosser it is and the less you think about it, the tastier it is.
0: So that's like when you get Papa John's pizza and you dip it in that delicious garlic butter sauce and you think to yourself, this is really poor for my health, Mm -hmm. but by God, I'm going to do it anyway. It's
1: like that, but with condensed milk. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. So we got to get a field trip organized (laughs) to Nova Scotia when the border (laughs) opens because I need to try this.
1: (laughs) I should tell the Nova Scotia tourism should start paying me.
0: Exactly. I, I can't get over. I mean, I'll eat it because you had me at rotating meat. But whoa! We'll, <laughs> but we'll, we'll we'll power through. Okay, so we need to talk about Nova Scotia today.
1: Gonna, Take your time. It's all right. I mean, We've got time. Today. I, we're
0: going to leave all this in because it's this, this good stuff. <laughs> but we we want to. <laughs> okay. Or well, I've composed myself now. um I'm also very hungry at the moment, <laughs> so I'm ready to get some Donair takeout. I,
1: I'll have someone send you some sauce. We'll finish
0: on this point, and we'll get to the actual subject of today. But I, when you said that they tried to do an iteration of, of I and poutine, I was, that's, that is a bridge too far. I mean – yeah, just you, your heart's going to explode I mean why would you do that but why wouldn't you that's the larger question
1: because you can it's like Mount Everest <laughs>
0: exactly it's a rock and you're going to climb it <laughs>
1: exactly it's a rock right. and you're going to eat it
0: you're going you're gonna to eat it and probably die from it because most people don't come back well most people do but there's a lot much like well, Mount it's, Everest that's a whole other podcast much like Mount Everest <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Nova Scotia is your home province, uh, and you've finished a lovely dissertation on Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canada. Uh, and you're here with us now at the Washington Library to work on a map project. We're going to talk about that because it's very exciting. But I want to know more about Nova Scotia. We've just covered the delicacies of Nova Scotia. Uh, and just a clarifying question, they're not Halifaxians. What are they? Haligonians. Haligonians. Okay. We want to make sure that we get all the terminology correct as we proceed on through our day. But Nova Scotia was a a critical province in the late imperial period, at least in terms of years before the American Revolution, and that it was uh, settled by, in part by New Englanders and bastion of loyalism at the aftermath of the American Revolution. But Nova Scotia, wrongly, I think both of us would agree, gets ignored quite a bit in the years before the American Revolution. So What's Nova Scotia all about before we get to 1775? What's going on up there and how does it fit into the imperial framework in the 18th century?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I think that first and foremost, it's important to acknowledge that um, Nova Scotia and the Canadian Maritime Provinces are the homeland of Mi'kmaq people. Uh, Mi'kmaq is the term that gets used to describe the Mi'kmaq uh, traditional homeland, which is pretty well contiguous with uh, what we think of as the modern province of Nova Scotia. Passamaquoddy people were living around in you know, and around Passamaquoddy Bay in what's now sort of the U.S.-Canada border region. Well, Stukwuk, which are also known as uh, Maliseet or St. John's people, lived in and still live in a large portion of New Brunswick. And I think that it's important to keep foregrounded. What we're talking about is we're talking about an indigenous homeland and we're talking about the process of an indigenous homeland being sort of violently and exploitatively transformed into Nova Scotia. And I think that's really important to keep that fact sort of at the, the top of the conversation because Nova Scotia is really, it's, um, it's a made-up concept that gets projected onto this space. The term itself comes from a very uh, shockingly short-lived Scottish colonial project in the 1630s hence the new Scotland. That's a project that fails almost as soon as it gets started. They send like a handful of settlers into what was recognized to be French territory. um, And they sort of get immediately run out. But somehow the name sticks and the next several hundred years are the process of trying to take this, this idea, this concept of Nova Scotia and make it into something that is more concrete, more actual, more real. So that's really the process that we're talking about here. So I think that the thing to understand about Nova Scotia is that it is considered to be And I'm going to talk sort of specifically about the British here. It's considered to be very, very strategically important in a kind of like broad 500 mile view of empire. And it's considered to be extremely strategically important in part because of where it's just physically located. You know, if you bring up a map and you look at it, you can imagine how any ship that's sailing from uh, the UK to the North American colonies, especially the more northern North American colonies, has to pass by some part of Nova Scotia. It's important for that reason, it's considered to be one of these sort of strategic keys to major shipping routes, where if it's occupied by someone who's not friendly to you, it can make your shipping a nightmare. It's also important because it has a lot of resources that are desired by imperial planners. First and foremost among these is fish. Very, very rich fishing banks continue to have very, very rich fishing banks until the whole thing kind of went kerplunk in the 90s. That's a separate conversation. But a major source of protein, especially once we're getting towards the American Revolution in this time period, those banks are important because they provide a large amount of the food that's getting sent to the sugar islands and the slave system in the Caribbean. A lot of enslaved folks are surviving off of New England fish. It's also important as a source of mastwood for the Navy and for what's referred to sort of vaguely as quote unquote naval stores. So it's an area that has a lot of resources. It's in a strategic location. The other piece of that is that it is not, if you're thinking about a kind of political economy and a way of living for Anglo-American settlers Nova Scotia is not a territory that's particularly attractive to that mode of life. It's not a great place if you're kind of like a uh, yeoman farmer, if what you want is kind of like a couple of acres of land to get a competency or whatever. The land is very agriculturally poor, weather is very challenging, and it can be difficult To kind of create the kind of connections that you need to create a colony in the mode of like Pennsylvania, kind of a best poor man's country kind of a model, which is not to say that it's impossible, but it's not as attractive. Those two factors combine to create a very important place that doesn't have a lot of settlers in it, which creates the kind of tensions that I explore in my work.
0: So is one of the reasons of that? Nova Scotia sometimes gets overlooked or often overlooked in broader histories of mid to late 18th century, particularly the revolutionary era, is because a lot of the interest is on the Ohio country and expansion westward. And then those rich lands as opposed to this agriculturally poor land like Nova Scotia, where great fishing, but not a a whole lot else going on.
1: Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, the overall population level remains quite low and it remains quite low to this day. I mean, when I talk about historic Nova Scotia, I'm talking about a territory that's larger than the modern province of Nova Scotia.
0: Yeah, break that down for us.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, generally when I'm using the term Nova Scotia and I'm talking about this sort of pre-revolutionary, revolutionary revolutionary era period, I'm talking about an amalgam of all of the Canadian maritime provinces. So Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Islands, New Brunswick, um, as well as a pretty good chunk of Maine. Everything sort of eastwards of the... The Penobscot River was kind of up in the air during this period about whether or not it belonged, quote unquote, belonged to the province of Nova Scotia or the colony of Maine. That's the region that I'm talking about. But even today, I don't think any of those individual units have a population of greater than a million people. It's been an area of historically low population, and I think that's low settler population, and I think that's a, a big part of why it tends to be lost over.
0: As we all know, the Seven Years' War transforms North America. New France is at an end, puts Native peoples in a a very difficult spot, no longer able to balance powers against each other in North America. And Nova Scotia and places like West and East Florida are profoundly affected by the British victory in this great war for empire. How does that affect Nova Scotia? What are the implications of that in the 1750s and 1760s?
1: Sure. Well, it has a tremendous, tremendous impact on Nova Scotia and to sort of tell the story. I need to start it a little bit before the outbreak of the Seven Years' War. Nova Scotia, first of all, is one of the places sort of in conjunction with the Ohio country where that war really has its genesis. The Ohio country and Nova Scotia are the two really hot spots in North America in terms of um, this clash between French and British ambitions that ultimately explode into the war. So the Ohio country story is pretty well known, um, especially coming out of a place like Mount Vernon, given George Washington's kind of like interesting relationship to the beginning of that theater of war.
0: You mean when he started a global war?
1: I was trying to put a more delicate point on it. But yes, I am, of course, referring to the time (laughs) that George Washington messed around in the woods and started a global war. But At the exact same time as that was happening, there was this increasing standoff in what's known as the Isthmus of Chicnecto. So it's the little strip of land that that joins the Mm -hmm. peninsula of Nova Scotia to the mainland of Nova Scotia. So in modern terms, it's the border between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, where the British and French had forts kind of set up facing each other across this very short stretch of land. Both of them were sort of doing terrible things to the Acadian population to try to get them on side. Ultimately, this culminates in the deportation of the entire Acadian population. So this is the other main sort of powder keg of war. But before that, let's go back uh, to the end of the previous war of Austrian succession. So New England troops sort of briefly captured Cape Breton, fortress of Louisbourg. It gets given back. But what comes out of that is a very robust and surprisingly well-funded effort to finally transform Nova Scotia from a place that was really still in the hands of indigenous folks to a lesser extent, Acadians, but very much still a heartland of the Mi'kmaq, heartland of the Wastookwook, heartland of Passamaquoddy, and turn that into a loyal white British province. This was kind of the pet project of the Board of Trade, the Earl of Halifax, who had a vision of bringing order to the British settler colonies. He sort of looked at them and was like, Ugh, uh, this, is a, this is a disaster. So his plan was to try to um, impose a sense of order, a sense of control on these colonies. And he starts with Nova Scotia because it's, um, I guess, has less baggage. You know, it doesn't have um, a civilian government. It doesn't have any significant white settler population whatsoever. The Board of Trade is very happy to completely disregard Indigenous land title, very happy to completely disregard the presence of, of Acadians as well, although to a somewhat lesser extent. And so he comes up with, in conjunction with a number of other imperial officials, a very sort of ambitious, wide-reaching plan to use parliamentary money, this is not a private venture, this is a public governmental venture, to locate, recruit, import as many settlers as possible, create new settlements that are designed to um, either push out, overwhelm, or, or isolate existing settlements of French and indigenous populations, and really aggressively transform Uh, Nova Scotia into a white settler colony. It's happening in the area in the late 1740s and early 1750s. It's part of what makes the the tension with the French so hot. And it's also what ends up in the founding of the town of Halifax, home of Demers, why it's called Halifax. And it is a town that gets built exclusively with parliamentary money, designed in London. It's just sort of brought overseas and transplanted directly onto the ground, whole cloth.
0: So it sounds like we've got two things going on here. One, they see it as a quote unquote, clean slate, or at least a, a landscape that doesn't have any permanent fixed settlement or land title. And of course, we do. That's not the case at all. But the other thing here is that there is direct intervention, in a sense, by the British government in colonization, direct in colonization. I mean, a lot of the attention in this period gets focused on the Stamp Act or the Sugar Act or the Declaratory Act and the taxation. But here we've got a situation, it sounds like, where the British government has said, all right, we need to better manage empire in some ways. And Halifax, He's the man who's got a lot of the ideas a few others as well, but he's, he's got several of the ideas to do it. Why focus on what you might call the bookends of empire, Nova Scotia, the Canadian Maritimes, East and West Florida, as opposed to permitting white settlers to go West into the Ohio country? You know, why erect that proclamation line of 1763? What's the strategy to push people sort of to the ends as opposed to let them bulge out in the middle?
1: The proclamation line generally gets talked about as a means of preventing conflict with indigenous people in the terms of the creation of a semi-protected indigenous homeland. And that gets talked about with greater or lesser cynicism, depending on who's doing the talking. But what is less commented on addressed with the Proclamation Act is that it's equally intended to keep settlers on the coasts and to kind of funnel settlement into these peripheries, into these bookends, as you just said. And they're very explicit about this. The Board of Trade is very explicit. And in some places, they actually say that that's more important than the idea of preventing conflicts with indigenous folks in the Ohio country. Because, of course, there are indigenous folks in both of those peripheries, especially in the north. I mean, the situation in Florida is is complicated because we're sort of at the, at the very beginning of a narrative about the creation of Seminole people at this point. But in the north, very strong, very robust indigenous nations that are very present. They're right the heck there. And they are never included in any of these concerns about protecting, supposedly protecting indigenous rights or properties. In fact, the Board of Trade sends out this circular about identifying indigenous land claims that's really directed towards people um, who are closer to the line. And the governor of Nova Scotia is like, okay, well, I talked to the Mi'kmaq and here are their claims. And the Board of Trade is like, we didn't mean you. Their willingness to completely disregard indigenous land claims in Nova Scotia is one of the most, continues to be completely breathtaking to me. It's almost unlike anywhere else in 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 the empire. They're very happy to consider it a settled issue and to make the claim, the totally erroneous claim that indigenous folks don't have any rights to the land there.
0: Well, it's remarkable because they spend so much time negotiating with the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee, yeah. the other peoples as well, the Cherokee. Um, the fact that they run roughshod over you know, native claims, places like Nova Scotia, is quite remarkable, as you say.
1: No, it's, it's extremely striking. Yeah, especially the British during this period are kind of increasingly willing to to select a handful of just sort of treaty-worthy nations like the Iroquois, like the Cherokee, put them on all their maps, make claims to land based on their relationship with those nations, and then pretend as though there are no indigenous people whatsoever to the eastward of that line. So there's that piece of it. So, So just to establish the fact that the line is there, just as much to push folks into these bookends. And the reason for this, I think, is a vision of of how empire should work, which is this idea of empire as a significantly blue water empire. It's an empire that is dominated by the Navy. It is dominated by the export of colonial goods to the heartland of empire in England. It is not one that's based on the series of small holding farms kind of doing their own thing. Uh, Is very much based on resource exploitation and on maintaining very strong ties with the homeland. And so, to that end, a coastal colony, wherever it is, is much more in keeping with that vision of what empire should be than an interior colony. And you see people saying this very explicitly. They're saying things like, oh, well, we can't let them slip away into the heart of empire because then they'll stop buying our stuff. They'll stop sending us things. They'll get all these big ideas about how they're equal and important and independent. The idea is really to try to expand a coastal vision, a coastal blue water vision of empire by pushing people into these areas that are seen as wrongly seen as being empty, that are still available on the coasts rather than allowing them to go further west.
0: Yeah, when I was reading a couple of your pieces in preparation for our talk today, I, I came across a citation to a document that I've only seen in transcribed form, there's some hints, and I can't remember the rest of the, the title, but, but some hints, and essentially it's saying, if you let them go west, they're going to set up their own manufacturers, and we won't be able to control them, they'll be self-sufficient, and, and we'll be in trouble from an imperial standpoint. You got to see the original document in queue, and I'm, I was super jealous, but it was part of that whole interrogation of empire in this critical moment where... They're trying to take this more active role, but they see, and probably they had a pretty good foresight to see that what would happen if, you know, you did let people like the Ohio company do what they wanted to do in the Ohio country and settle, and they're just going to make their own stuff and they're not going to have any need for us anymore. We can't let that happen. You use the term in some of your writings, weaponized settlement, which was a new term to me. Unpack that for us.
1: So the idea with weaponized settlement is It's a term that I use to describe a phenomena that I see very strongly in sources, especially talking about Nova Scotia, but I see it all over the place as well. I think that it's, it's something that goes far beyond Nova Scotia, which is this idea that settlers, particularly white Protestant settlers, can be strategically deployed in order to make uh, and strengthen geopolitical claims. And I call it weaponized because the way that this gets talked about is in very explicitly military terms. It's this idea that another way to wrest land away from supposed enemies, be they indigenous, be they French, be they Spanish, is to deploy our settlers and they will hold that land. They will win that land for us in a way that's very analogous to battles or sieges or erecting actual literal forts. They get get talked about the exact same way. So it's a very explicitly military view of what settlers are and what they do and what they're for
0: that's really clever, I think. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, the big buzzword in recent years has been settler colonialism. And it's really hard to say anything new at this point. One one professor who should go on name was like, at this point, we've kind of worn out that terminology. And so let's start thinking about something new. But it sounds like from your weaponized settlement standpoint, then we've got actually a new way to think about this. And a new sort of geographic understanding of what they're trying to attempt as opposed to simply, you know, planting yeoman farmers in there and calling it a day. There's very much an imperial dynamic to it that you may not see elsewhere in the North American continent.
1: Mm-hmm. And the way I think about the relationship between weaponized settlement and settler colonialism, because this is a question that I, I get fairly frequently, as you might imagine, is um, if settler colonialism is a description of, a, of an observable phenomena, the whole like it's a, it's a process, not an event. Weaponized settlement is a specific way of understanding how that phenomena could be used for political ends. A war is politics by other means. Settlement is war by other means, which is also politics, where you have a set of um, imperial administrators sort of observing the fact that these colonies in North America, that when you have sort of self-reproducing settler populations, they push out indigenous people, they push out rival claimants, and people are observing that and being like, okay, well, let's harness that, let's use that to our very specific geopolitical ends. And the other way in which weaponized settlement is quite different from a settler colonialism is that it's, it's it doesn't care at all about the settlers themselves. With settler colonialism and settler colonial studies, it's all about sort of settlers trying to create a world that centers on themselves at the expense of indigenous populations. Weaponized settlement does not give two cares about actual settlers. And they talk about them in very instrumental ways. They are very willing to put them in situations of extreme personal danger to actual settlers. That's the way that these planners are thinking about them. They're just sort of thinking about them as warm bodies that will either absorb violence that they don't want to deal with or will sort of expand into territory that they would like to have. It's a view that is sort of simultaneously like deeply anti-Indigenous and also dismissive of actual European settlers.
0: Let's talk about a couple of people who've got grand ideas for this place. One of them is Alexander McNutt, who I've encountered in my own work, but he was kind of Ah. on the periphery of my work. And you know, I've talked before about the Philadelphia Company and the uh, ambitions of of some folks there, but was telling you, I was like, I just can't understand what in the heck is going on. <laughs> but fortunately you do. And Alexander McNutt is at at the heart of this and he's an Irishman, right, if I remember correctly.
1: Yes, he's he's Scotch Irish.
0: Yeah, Scotch Irish. And so he's he's often seen as this ruthless land speculator who's simply out for self-aggrandizement. But you've got a different take. On, I mean, this guy, it's, he's a just a fascinating character. Tell us a little bit about him because you've got a different read on him.
1: Mm-hmm. Alexander McNutt is one of my favorite. I mean, not favorite because I, I want to make it very clear that I do not ignore any of his views. And he's also just an absolute mess of a human being. But he's one of the most fascinating people that I write about. And he's also my dad's favorite character in my dissertation. And my dad uh, is convinced that we are distantly related to him, which is a, a whole other <laughs> a whole other fun story. Um <laughs> So McNutt is this character. Yeah, he's 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 of sort of Ulster Scots descent. It's a little bit unclear if he was born in Ireland, if he was born in rural Virginia. Either way, he does. He kind of grows up in this kind of like quote unquote backcountry Virginia context. He ends up in the militia during the Seven Years' War. He's stationed in Nova Scotia. I just imagine him having some kind of like religious revelation being posted in Nova Scotia because he just becomes obsessed with it. It becomes his life's work. And specifically moving white settlers into Nova Scotia becomes his life's work and his absolute central motivating obsession. McNutt is a guy I have described him as having a fluid relationship with the truth.
0: Yeah, yeah I like that line that yeah, in your article. He,
1: a lot of the stuff he says, and this is why he's been sort of dismissed out of hand so much are just, like, demonstrably untrue. He makes these insane claims. At one point, he's like, I've brought 4,000 people into this province, and at the time, the Nova Scotia has a white population of maybe 2,000 people. After the American Revolution, he sort of shows up in Congress and is like, I have the sole right to settle all of the Ohio country and the Susquehanna. And it's like, no, you don't. Why are you saying this? Who even are you? You're, okay. So he's a very kind of, like, tall tale, like, larger-than-life liar. Um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but he has like some surprisingly consistent ideological views, which I find really fascinating. And because what he's all about, he's not about personal profit at all. Actually, what he's all about is he has this almost like messianic, self-appointed destiny to be the hero and the the savior of the small holding white Protestant farmer. He sees himself as the champion of these people, and he sees his mission as making Nova Scotia into a haven for these types of folks. So with that in mind, he kind of, not single-handedly, but he's largely responsible for this boom in Nova Scotia in the 1760s that's centered in specifically Philadelphia. He has some contacts in Philadelphia. I'm not sure how he met Ben Franklin. I sort of imagined him just kind of like kicking in his door one day and being like, I have this great idea I need to tell you about.
0: Uh, but he somehow gets
1: contacts with Benjamin Franklin He has a variety of contacts in Philadelphia and he gets a large number of people on board at which point it sort of takes on a life of its own. And this craze for Nova Scotian land sweeps through Philadelphia. And at the height of this thing, This is right before the Stamp Act gets signed because there's this sort of like mini crisis where everyone realizes that as soon as the Stamp Act passes, the cost of their land grants is going to become exponentially higher.
0: That's one of my favorite parts is they're just like applying for grant after grant because time is running out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So there's this like very like down to the wire, you know, it's October 31st or October 30th because it's going to come into effect on, on November 1st. And of course, Nova Scotia is one of the few places where the Stamp Act is actually enforced. But so on that day, on the 30th and on the 31st, well, over a million acres of land is granted that has Alexander that's name on it. And then there's even more land than that also gets granted at that time. But that's that's the amount that Alexander MacDuff has his fingers in. It's interesting to me because he does have this very consistent view. He's very against what he sees as exploitative land-granting processes, sort of sets that up in confrontation with these very sort of manorial, quasi-feudal plans for Nova Scotia land. He's constantly petitioning the Board of Trade to ensure uh, religious freedom. And to not be tenants, to not be renters, to own their land in freehold. And it becomes an obsession with him to the point that one of my favorite Alexander McNutt moments is he, he's disgraced in part because he kind of goes after all of these Nova Scotia government insiders who he accuses of doing terribly nefarious things, which they are in fact doing. The other great thing about Alexander McNutt is like, he's crazy, but he's not wrong about that part. And then he just starts granting other people's lands. So he kind of like shows up in New Dublin Township and starts handing out land to settlers that he does not have any claim (laughs) or right to at all whatsoever. And so he sort of gets hauled back in front of the Nova Scotia council and they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, it's, it's my land to give it's for the people kind of a moment.
0: So walk us through the historians process here, because as we kind of talked about it, when we introduced this gentleman, this fascinating man, a lot of people had dismissed him kind of outright as this grandiose uh, ridiculous individual I, I can't remember the quote that uh, bernard Balin had of him in in his voyagers of the west but it was it was similarly dismissive and not taking this guy seriously and can kind of understand why, as you say, he's got a fluid relationship to the truth. So walk us through the process in a reassessing this guy. How do you, when you're going in the archives or you're reading his stuff, you're reading these petitions, what's going through your mind that helps you see him in a different light as opposed to what people had seen before?
1: I was first introduced to McNutt. My, my master's thesis was on what's referred to as the Nova Scotia planters, which is this moment, not even after the end of the war, it's sort of 1759 to 1760 where about 8,000 New Englanders are brought into Nova Scotia, to largely occupy former Acadian lands. And McNutt kind of first pops up in that context. And so he was sort of in the background of things I was looking at. And I read a actually fairly sympathetic account of him in a description of one of the townships that he was involved in promoting for. And the author basically says, you know, he's a mess and he lied a lot but he did bring some people into the town. So I kind of had that in the back of my head as I started encountering him more and more and more. I guess the aha moment was when I started looking into the uh, settlement plans for folks that were not the Philadelphia companies. There was this whole class of either actual aristocrats or kind of wannabe aristocrats who came up with these visions for how they wanted to use land in Nova Scotia to create manors, to create elaborate tenancy systems, and to try to recreate these kind of feudal dreams of land use. And I realized that um, McNutt, in all of his kind of like manic glory, was responding to an actual phenomena. He has like a thousand memorials to the Board of Trade. And I started to see how consistent he was in his vision of how land should be used how the empire should be run, and I saw all of these connections between what he was saying um, and sort of a larger literature out there about sort of um, ideological clashes in political economy, uh, a much larger body of literature that goes much far beyond Nova Scotia, where I kind of started to see him as kind of the extreme sort of uh, radical fringe of a very mainstream vision of what the empire should be that was very central to what becomes the American Revolution. So I think that was kind of the turning point for me was being able to put him in this larger context and also just give him the the chance to be taken seriously on his own terms.
0: That's one of the fascinating things I always find is when you have these characters like McNutt, who are seemingly dismissed and outlandish, but then if you take the moment to actually listen to what they're saying, they might have a point in some respects, or at least they are responding to something, as you say, in a much wider context, and they're part of a process that's evolving over time. And you can sometimes miss that if you're not attentive to it. I mean, one of the the folks you brought up, or you haven't brought him up yet, but we'll we'll do so now, who's got these grand feudal manorial dreams is the Earl of Egmont. And he's kind of like, in a sense, the opposite side of McNutt in terms of his ambitions, but they're all part of the same process. What's his dream?
1: Egmont's whole deal, you know, if McNutt has this messianic vision of himself as the champion of of the small holding Protestant white farmer, the Earl of Egmont has this like fantasy of being William the Conqueror. does very explicitly His original dream is that he wants to get a grant for all of what is now Prince Edward Island. He wants all of that. So it's it's kind of like a proprietary colony. He does not get that grant, although PEI does get developed in a very tenant landlord direction. The Earl of Egmont ends up getting a grant of 22,000 acres uh, centered on what is today referred to as Jador Harbor, headed Jador, and the eastern shore of Nova Scotia. He wants to develop it very explicitly as a feudal manor. The highest expression of this is he he has someone go in and, you know, very detailed survey map of the whole of this whole landholding. And then he goes in and pencil and he um, sort of sketches out his dreams and he you know, writes all of these long marginal notes on this. This is in the, the British Library and I got to see it in person and it's very cool, uh, and very weird. And all of his marginal notes are all about like, all right, so I'm going to divide up the land into one square mile because that is what William the Conqueror did. And that is how he reported those who helped him at the time. And everyone who gets these grants will be responsible for defense, and then they can delegate it to their own knights or whatever. And it's very—it's it's very explicitly this feudal vision that he's trying to transplant onto the land
0: of Nova Scotia. It's like medieval times before medieval times.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, it's kind of his own fair.
0: <laughs> That's where the donaire comes from—is that was going to be the staple food? <laughs> oh
1: God. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, and the interesting thing about Egmont, and I think that this was part of my like, because I, I saw this kind of interesting contract between McNutt and Egmont, but I think that the point where I started to take McNutt like a little bit more seriously was that the British, like Egmont's plans are in many ways just as ridiculous as McNutt's. but the Nova Scotia government and the Board of Trade were so on board. They loved it. You know, his personal lawyer was like also um, on the Nova Scotia Council. And if you look at um, DeBar's Atlantic Neptune, there's a whole page that's just Egmont Harbor and it gets its own little inset view, like very idyllic view of like the process that they're beginning to clear out the area of the manor house and there's like a little is like a little rustic cabin there but which is completely outside any kind of reality in terms of what kinds of, of development or settlement was happening there. It's only there because of the aggressive level of endorsement by the Nova Scotia government, as well as Desbyers himself, who was also kind of a would-be manor guy.
0: So do, do you think they are also enthusiastic in part because it's an attempt to kind of replicate or preserve the British landed class hierarchical structure?
1: Yeah, they absolutely they see it as an opportunity to expand the British traditional aristocratic landholding practices into North America.
0: You mentioned bars Atlantic Neptune, and for folks who have not, I mean, they may have heard of the Atlantic Neptune as this marvelous four-volume atlas with the fourth volume in two parts. So it's not five volumes, it's really 4.5. Marvelous series of maps based in part on the General Survey of North America, which takes place in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, in which the British government is trying to map the new empire and to help bring places like Nova Scotia into the imperial fold. We're working on a little project here in conjunction with our friends at the Leventhal Map and Education Center at the Boston Public Library called Argo, American Revolutionary Geographies Online. And Ala, you are our postdoctoral fellow who is spearheading that effort. Tell us a little bit about Argo and your love affair with maps prior to this particular position.
1: Sure. So Argo is a very, very exciting project. And the vision for Argo is that it's going to be a centralized research portal for digitized maps of the period between about 1750 and 1800. So, the period that covers um, Seven Years' of War as well as the American Revolution and the period sort of immediately afterwards. And the idea is that it's going to be bringing together maps that are held by and digitized by many different institutions. And in addition to being a centralized site where you can kind of locate and look at fun, high resolution, zoomable, digitized versions of these maps, it's also going to have a very robust interpretive apparatus to help uh, the public, as well as researchers, better understand these maps, what we can learn, how these maps work as sources, how they relate to one another, as well as hopefully be sort of a site for additional research into those maps. So it's it's a super super exciting project that I'm very excited to be a part of. I love maps, and I'm a very I'm a very spatial thinker. Generally, when I'm reading sources or primary or secondary, I always have um, you know Google Maps open in a tab because for me the way that I can best understand. The things that are happening is by trying to remain attentive to the, the, the spatial relationships between spaces. That's always been very central to how I think about things and how I do things. The geographic reality of those spaces, how people move through those spaces, how people move between those spaces is absolutely central in a way that's sometimes neglected. And then as I've moved into the dissertation work, so I made reference to the Egmont map already here. McNutt also made a great map that I often think about and talk about and write about in conjunction with that Egmont map. Where he takes a uh, map of Nova Scotia and he shades in areas that he says he has a right to, and then he sort of marks out in yellow all of the areas that he sees as being exploited of landowners, like the Earl of Egmont, like Debar. Debar gets gets it's highlighted on that map, and just thinking about the ways in which people were using maps to make arguments for what the empire should be, how land should be used, how land should be organized during this period it's easy to look at something like Debar's Atlantic Neptune and just be like oh look at all these cool maps coastal maps and like be like okay well now i understand you know how people got from point a to point b which they are but Debar is also you know a very specific argument about what those lands should look like how they should be run you know Debar doesn't include any indigenous presence whatsoever in any of his maps of Nova Scotia he goes out of his way to actually erase them in some places and he specifically highlights land holding practices that are in line with his own sort of more manorial aristocratic visions of how land should be held and how land should be used. And I think attentiveness to that allows us to both have a better understanding of how people were really moving through this space, but also how people were understanding and making arguments about this space.
0: I think it's all very well said, because one of the things that uh, I find interesting is is map, you know, maps are very fun to look at. There's no question about that. Colorful, even when they're not colorful, they're they're very pleasing to look at. But I think it was your advisor, Dan Richter, who said you have to listen to your sources. And the same is true with maps. I think sometimes you get lulled into a false sense of security because maps are neat looking. But most people are trying to tell you something and they're making an argument about something. And sitting with that in the context of other sources is a really fun way to unlock not only the landscape of the past, but then what people are trying to accomplish in them, as Karen Wolf likes to say, the context in which decisions are made. It's, it's a great way to think about them, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And oftentimes those maps are some of the most powerful expressions of the kinds of arguments that people are making. I think that it's easy to be like lulled into that sense or to be lulled into a sense that they're portraying an objective reality when in fact they're some of the most powerful ideological tools of what North America should be during a time when that was very much contested
0: more conversations after the break. Hi, friends. Did you know that the Center for Digital History also produces live stream interviews with some of your favorite authors? Head over to www.mountvernon.org slash GW Digital Talks to watch our past programs and register for upcoming events. We hope to see you online soon. And now, back to the show. Ola, what book are you reading right now?
1: Sure. So um, I have two answers to that question. So the sort of uh, history, like academic ebook uh, that I'm reading right now, and I'm actually I'm reading it more for fun than I am for research, um, is I'm reading Eric Seaman's Speaking with the Dead in Early America. just about done that, which I've absolutely loved it. I, I am a person who has sort of a deep fascination with ideas about the supernatural historically, as well as sort of currently and like the role that ghosts play in culture. So I've, I've, it's sort of been doing all of the things that I've wanted it, wanted it to be doing. And it's been a really fascinating read. So I've really been enjoying it. It's beautifully written as well. The other thing I'm reading right now is I am actually I am rereading the Little House on the Prairie series by Laura Ingalls Wilder, which were um, they were dear favorites of mine as a kid. I was one of those little girls that like was very obsessed uh, with Little House on the Prairie. And it's been really interesting to revisit them because I have been fully aware of the many, many, many ways in which they're problematic for you know quite some time, but I, I haven't actually revisited them since I became an adult with way too many degrees. And it's been it's been really striking. It's like it's like there there have been moments where the sort of expressions of a subtler colonial like a, a romanticized subtler colonial viewpoint are like so crystallized and I'm like, I'm gonna take that out and use it as like a quote that I can then dissect in Farmer Boy. Where uh, Alonzo's Pa is like, you know, never forget that before, you know, America was just a tiny handful of people clinging to the coasts. And, you know, we farmers are the ones that took it and we made it. And we took it from the Spaniards because they were arrogant and the French just wanted furs. And it's like such it's like a parody of itself, almost, of just how, how, how pure an expression it is of a very particular vision of what settlers are, what settlers do. That it's like it's very it's very interesting. It's a very interesting thing to read as an adult.
0: Who is the author you admire most?
1: At the risk of being slightly pandering, I'm going to say Dan Richter, who is my advisor. Uh, But I mean that seriously. You know, I think that he is one of these historical authors that really cares about writing and really cares about creating a book that is just as much a work of writing as it is a work of scholarship, as well as just being kind of as a person, very oriented towards bringing up people around him, which is something that I, I really, really admire about him.
0: He's a good one. What is the most exciting document you've found in your research?
1: Mm, okay, so this is another one I have two answers to, a fun answer and a answer that is more oriented towards like um, something that was actually helpful for my research. So the one that was really helpful for my research is um, there's this map by Charles Morris, who is a Surveyor General of Nova Scotia in the 1750s and 60s, that comes from this weaponized settlement tradition where he actually, he goes in, he he, he does a very accurate uh, survey and mapping of Acadian settlements. And then he goes back in and he draws in these little grids, which are all the locations where the plan was to strategically deploy Protestant families. And the explicit goal of this, if you read sort of the attached materials that comes with this map, this idea that the Protestant families deployed in these areas were going to sort of buy the strength of their own sort of reproductive and uh, cultural merits would expand from within these Akkadian settlements and overwhelm them, either by intermarrying with Akkadian women and and somehow converting them, or just by like kind of crowding them out in a way that they would kind of wither away. And the Morris map, and that was a vision that I knew well from the textual writing about this moment, about this time, but seeing that map where it's so explicit, it's like we're going to put them here, 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 and here, and this is what they're going to do, was like breathtaking. Like I just stared at it like dumbstruck for like several minutes because I was like oh well, here's my thesis like <laughs> here it is cool great love that in kind of the more fun things I did a research trip to the UK I spent a couple days uh in Wales mostly as just kind of like a vacation tack on but I was in uh Bangor and I knew that they had some archival holdings at the University of Bangor there so I was like all right I'm gonna go check those out And they had a very small collection of folks that actually were um peripherally involved in Picto and in, uh, the Philadelphia plantation there there wasn't really anything in there that ultimately made it into the dissertation. But what I did discover is that Edmund Crawley, who was a member of the Nova Scotia council and was involved uh, sort of peripherally in this believed himself to be a prophet who was having messianic dreams. You know, I was reading his letters and it was all about how, you know, I had a dream of the Canary. And what that means is I should invest in the Canary islands and sort of like dreams about him predicting how long it would take his kids to like sail to and from England. And also included was, uh, This poem, which I'm going to read, which is entitled The Millennium by Edmund Crawley, In 1803, universal harmony will be. Lion and the lamb will then agree in the most sacred opinion of E.C. This is written in 1795, and this is his prediction that the world will end in 1803 with the second coming of Christ.
0: Well... Somebody's a little bit late. Um,
1: maybe not the most accurate prediction,
0: ultimately. Maybe not the most accurate That's a whole other show is millennialism and uh, prophecies of the return of the king. Um, not Aragorn, but uh, Jesus Christ. When you ascend to the great uh, library in the sky or the archive, whatever you so prefer, what do you hope people remember most about your work?
1: Weaponized Settlement is really... <sighs> That's the thing that I would like folks to take away from my work. This idea of the role that the state very broadly understood the state had in actively promoting settler expansion in a very kind of instrumental and cynical kind of way. I think that a lot of the time when we are talking about European settler expansion or we're talking about settler colonialism, the emphasis, you know, not incorrectly gets placed on the individual settler families. That's kind of like the vision that I think that even historians kind of adhere to when none of that expansion, none of that van- expansion with all of the violence um, and the dispossession and, and, and the disaster that it brought on in indigenous people, that is not an individualistic project. None of that would have been possible without the buy-in active support and investment of various governmental and quasi-governmental bodies. It simply wouldn't be possible. And I think that focusing in Nova Scotia allows, you know, it's it's very explicit there. It's very, very clear and it's very, very obvious. But I think that that is equally true of places like the Ohio country. I think that without uh, buy-in infrastructurally from governments, from motivated individuals, from people who saw political advantage in promoting that kind of settlement, you the history of North America would have looked extremely different. And I think that's kind of like the central thing that I'd like people that if I do anything, <laughs> that's a contribution I would like to make.
0: Well, you convinced me and I'm going to cite you. So that's one.
1: Yay! Well, that's a win for me.
0: <laughs> oh, thanks very much. This has been great.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This, is, this has been great.
0: Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Busky, your host and producer. Jeanette Patrick offered editorial assistance with additional support provided by Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is "Witches Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite programs. If you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. Find this and other episodes by heading over to our website at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.